Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at thedistrict.church. Well, good morning, church. All right. I'd ask how your week has been, but I think I have a pretty good pulse on, uh, on what that answer would be, and uh, just what a, what a week it has been. Um, but can I just say, like, are, are we surprised? Um, I, I don't think we should be surprised <laughs> anymore as to, as to what's going on. I know many of us maybe had high hopes for 2021, and it's just kind of like continuing on the 2020 uh, rhythm and, and just 2020 vibe, as the young kids say these days. Um, but we really couldn't say goodbye to 2020 fast enough. I mean, like, we, we wanted to get on, we wanted to move on to to something else, but I just have this feeling that, that this is kind of the norm. This is the new norm. This is just what we're going to deal with. It's, it's just going to be chaos for a little while, and, and I think it's okay. I, I truly do. I think it's okay. Again, we're going to lament, and we're going to confess where we're wrong, and we're going to continue working, and we're going to continue uh, prodding within our communities, and we're going to continue going after the Lord, and we're just going to continue doing life and living life and, and figuring out how we get the scripture into one another's minds and hearts and we're going to magnify Jesus. We're going to do those things, but we just shouldn't be surprised anymore when the circumstances surrounding our community or our culture are just kind of rearing their head and, and revealing really the, the status of, of their identity, the status of what's going on around us, especially when it's not Christian, when it's not Christian. And so that's why for me, again, like looking at kind of the landscape of our culture right now, I'm just not surprised. I'm not shocked. I'm actually more shocked that it took this long, that we've kind of just coasted for a couple of decades on what we would just kind of say was uh, Western American dream building and living. And, and while underneath the surface of all of that was just kind of bubbling up this ugly identity that sin is still running rampant. And so we just shouldn't be surprised by this at all. I mean, the divide we're currently seeing in our country, I, I don't care, again, as Josh said, like which political party you choose. I mean, at face value, looking at just the polarization of both sides and the lack of any sort of unity in this country is just at best disheartening. And that's at best disheartening and just exhausting. And this week I've seen just a flood of posts from pastors um, talking about just the embarrassment of January 6th and what happened at the Capitol and how we as a church now more than any other time in our generation, I'm not going to say any time ever because there's been a lot worse scenarios in history than what we're facing right now, but at least in our generation right now, as a church, we need to stand and not only proclaim the biblical Christ, but exhibit the biblical Christ. Because where the Bible promotes unity and peace, I think our country and really our world is just free-falling in the opposite direction. I really do. I just think it's free-falling in the opposite direction. And it's looking for a lifeline, but not really sure where to grab a hold of any sort of lifeline. It's looking for lifelines in political parties or political movements or political agendas. 
It's looking for lifelines in careers or in family or honestly just anything other than Jesus. That's what it's looking for a lifeline in. And when it doesn't meet its demand for satisfaction, that's where you start to see this just welling up, disenchanted, disheartened frustration with the status quo. And the only thing to do is just like a a, a child who's frustrated is just kind of like, um, outlash or just get just so frustrated that you can't control your own actions and you just act sinfully sinfully and so what we believe we need to do now at this moment in the in the time and life of this church is to proclaim to you the basic principles the basic principles of God's word that guide us into a life that is anchored in truth that's tethered in prayer that's bold in evangelism, that's covered in community, because that's what you need in times like this. Like, it's easy for me to say, you need Jesus, and yes, that is true, but God has set up for us certain plays to run that allow us to move the ball towards the end zone that is Jesus Christ himself to satisfy us. And if you're not into sports and you don't really understand that one, then God's provided for us a feast that is Jesus Christ himself to satisfy us. But there's a recipe with certain ingredients necessary for us to abide by in order for us to get to the feast. Like there's things that God has called us into and has invited us into to play a part in that as we abide in those things, as we do those things, it leads us into experiencing and savoring Jesus and treasuring Him above all things that's going on in our culture around us. And to make myself clear, like I'm talking to Christians today. I'm talking to Christians today. If you're a Christian who is in relationship with Jesus, it is not a passive relationship. It's not. Yes, Jesus did all the work for your relationship to be possible. Yes, Jesus did all the work for your relationship to grow. God is the one who ultimately transforms you from one degree of glory to another. Absolutely. That is what's happening right now. But this is not a passive participation. There are no, as the best way I can say it, couch potato Christians. There just aren't. Another way I could kind of put that is, think about it, and, and yes, I use sports analogies because it's just my background. Think about it this way, because hopefully this is encouraging for you. This would be like, take a football team, just because we're in playoffs right now. Take a football team and take a commissioner of a league, kind of the one who's controlling Uh, the league and what's going on within the league and how many teams can be in it and who can play and all the rules and all those things. Take the commissioner and the commissioner comes to one of the teams and says, your team is not only going to play, but your team is going to make it to the playoffs and not only make it to the playoffs, but your team is going to make it to the championship game and not only make it to the championship game, but your team is going to win the championship. Hands down. Guaranteed. But in order for you to get there, you still have to play the games. You have to participate in the games. And you have to run the plays that your coach provides for you in order to get the ball down the field, in order to score touchdowns. And guess what? Some of those plays, there are going to be injuries that happen. 
There are going to be circumstances that come into play because there's an opponent on the other side who's trying to keep you from getting to the end zone, who's trying to keep you from getting to the playoffs, into the championship, into the victory. And because there's opponents, that means there are going to be collateral damage. There's going to be people who are injured. There's going to be people who die. There are going to be things that happen along the way that are not going to be enjoyable. Some games you're going to win with ease, and it's going to be mountaintop experiences, and there's not going to be any injuries, and it's just going to be glorious. And then there are going to be moments where you actually do lose a game, and there are going to be injuries, and players are going to be traded, and people are going to be off your team, and they're going to be on. Like, there's going to be things that happen that are not going to be enjoyable, and it's going to be, feel like you're in the valley, and it's going to feel like what's going on with our team. But there's a guarantee that you're going to win enough games to be able to get to the playoffs. And in the playoffs, you're going to win every game in the playoffs. And eventually, you're going to get to the championship, and you will be victorious. Why? Because you have one specific player who is the MVP, who is on your team, who is Jesus Christ Himself, and He is guaranteeing victory no matter what. No opponent can come against Him. And so, you have to play. You have to participate. Again, Jesus isn't just going to walk down through the whole thing while you're on the sideline and just do it all for us, but rather what He's going to do is He's going to be in the moment. He's going to say, hey, I'm going to hand you the ball and I'm going to block for you. You might get hit, you might get tackled. That's going to happen because sin's still running. It's still rampant, but you're going to get there and I'm going to be with you and we're going to celebrate, we're going to high five. Jesus is with us in every single play, but we're in the play. We're not on the sidelines. And so the way I'm kind of pulling this in is this is going on with us right now. Like the championship's already won. The victory is already had, but God is calling us into our current moment and our current time and the boundaries in which we live in, the cities in which we live in, the neighborhoods within which we live in, He has placed us here for this moment to run the plays that He has called in order for us to move the ball of His gospel and His kingdom forward with victory knowing that Jesus Christ is on our side and that He's living in each one of us. And we're going to feel injuries throughout the way. Absolutely, that's going to happen. But He's with us and He's asking us to also participate in knowing the plays that He's giving to us. And that's what we're going to be looking at over these few weeks. Because you will not treasure and you will not enjoy Jesus without God's Word, without prayer, without evangelism, and without community. And I even think, as we were just talking, we're going to extend one extra week and provide for you the idea of spiritual discipline of rest. Because it takes work to rest. Rest is not built into the fabric of, of westernized uh, just culture, but especially westernized Christianity. Because we think every moment we have downtime, we got to fill it with something that we think is productive, but yet God is calling us to rest. And so that'll be a week that we're going to add to the end of this as well. But community, like the same goes with the church. Like you cannot enjoy Jesus apart from Jesus' church. That'd be like going out for drinks with Jesus and he shows up with his bride and you say to Jesus, hey, um, I know this is a little awkward, but like, I'm good with you. I don't like your bride. Like, how do you think that's going to go? I don't think it's going to go well for you bad-mouthing Jesus' bride. 
Now, yeah, she's messy, and she's filled with sinners, and we make mistakes. Every church makes mistakes, but we're his bride. And he's with us every single moment. Like Jesus doesn't go anywhere that his church does not go with him because he's in union with his bride. And so you can't have one without the other. So God in his infinite wisdom has set up some principles, ingredients, if you will, plays to run for us to simply get more Jesus. And in that, we'll get more satisfaction. That's what we're after. So today my aim is to show you why God's word is necessary for you to see Jesus, to be closer to Jesus, and to abide in Jesus. And I know some of you right now are in the kind of first week maybe of a Bible reading plan. Um, you've got the big goal of reading the Bible in a year, and, and yes and amen to that. I think that is a great and lofty goal. Um, I may not have to convince you why the Bible is good to read, but I do want you to listen up because there's going to come a time when the Bible's hard to read. Like, right? Like it's, and I'm not like talking Leviticus. <laughs> I'm just talking like there's a time when the Bible's hard to read. And I think that resonates with everyone in this room. Like there's, there's moments where it's just like, I just love the Word. And I love being in the Word. And I just love reading. Every time I open it, I'm just refreshed. But then there's times where I open it and I, where are you, Lord? hard to read. And so this, I'm hoping for us, is, is maybe a sermon that we can use as a beacon for down the road or right now when it's in a season where it's just hard to read. It's hard to get into God's Word. And so with that, let's go to Psalm 1. Open up your Bibles. Psalm 1 is where we're going to be. Turn them on, flip the pages, whatever that looks like for you. Psalm 1, and if, and if, man, if you're just, hey, I'm couch potato, we'll have it on the screen for you, okay? We'll, uh, we'll put it up there. Psalm 1, verses 1 through 3, and then we'll jump over to Psalm 19 after this. I just kind of want to lay a foundation, and yes, I know we've, we've preached on Psalm 1 a few times uh, before. I think Josh has actually probably covered a couple of those when we've preached on them, so I'm just, just going to do a better job on it as we jump into this, but... <laughs> Uh, that's good. Verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. So here's what we have, just right out of the gate. Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law, he's just meditating on it, day and night, thinking on it, pondering on it. And this type of person is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. All right, that's important to just kind of understand there, that this is, this is a person who is anchored, who is planted, okay? They're not, unwaver they're, not, they're not wavering from one side to the other. They're planted by a stream of water, so they know that they're getting nutrients from what they're connected to and anchored to. And, and not only that, but they are producing fruit. Now, is the fruit for the tree? No, the fruit is for others, 
to be a nurturing and encouragement to others for sustenance and for um, uh, fruit to be able to eat of and partake of and to then maybe even plant elsewhere. And so, so many analogies and so many illustrations that you can use with this idea of a tree being planted. But ultimately, this is someone, again, with the meditation and the delight that is in the law of the Lord. Now, I want to be specific here of talking about what we're looking at when it's talking about the law, okay? This is not just any law, okay? This isn't someone who's just geeked out on law in general. This isn't someone that in our current day and age is like looking up and researching every speed limit on every single road and just excited to follow it. Excited to be like, I mean, like our speed limit on the road right next to us is like 30 miles an hour. And I just think it's dumb. Like, I don't go 30 on it, all right? I'm just every time I'm driving down it, I'm just confessing to the Lord the fact that I'm going 40. All right, I'm just sinning every time I know it because I'm not obeying the laws of the land, Romans 13. So it's not someone who's just geeked out on just law and rules. It's important by which we're looking at the law of who? The Lord. So there are laws and there are rules and there are commands that are just everywhere, but there are specifically laws and rules and commands that are possessed by, thought of, and created and given by the Lord Himself. And that is what this person is delighting in and meditating on day and night. His delight is in the law of the Lord. So what is specifically the law of the Lord? And why does it bring the psalmist delight? The law of the Lord, at the simplest explanation I can give you, is guidance from God. Just the simplest explanation I could possibly give is guidance from God. Now, more of a complex definition would be the law of the Lord is the manifested, written representation of Jesus Christ. Who is the embodiment of God's Word and the visible representation of the invisible God? A little more complex, right? But this is the law of the Lord. Another way to say it is Jesus Christ is the visible revelation of God. And the law or the Bible is the written revelation of Jesus Christ. To break that down even more, to know God is to know Jesus. To know Jesus is to know God's Word. You can start to put together some equations here. If I want to know Jesus, I need to know His Word. If I want to know God, I need to know Jesus. So His Word gets me to God. His Word helps me understand who God is like and what He does and what His actions are and what His plans are and what His will is and how He deals with sinners and how He deals with saints and how He works out His will throughout all of history. When He chooses to do something, His Word reveals why He chooses to do that. And again, there are going to be thousands and thousands of questions that you're going to experience throughout your lifetime to where I would say today, I have way more questions about God and His character than I did when I became a believer at the age of 14 years old. Way more. At that point, someone just told me like, hey, you're an idiot and you do bad things and God forgives that because of Jesus taking the penalty for you on the cross. Sign me up. That sounds great. I need the forgiveness. 
would much rather prefer living life with Jesus for eternity than living life apart from Jesus, receiving his wrath for eternity. I'm team Jesus. The more I got into his word through discipleship over the next four years after that, the more it actually breathed into me life and understanding around the wisdom of God and how he works things out. And to this day, so there's this growing, beautiful, just life-giving understanding and wisdom and knowledge of who God is the more I understand his word, while at the same time it actually creates a larger chasm of seeing how deep and complex God is to where I actually now know less than what I thought I knew in the beginning. Does that make any sense? Okay, thank you, Bryce. And so to know God is to know Jesus. To know Jesus is to know the Word of God, the law of the Lord. Matthew Henry, a commentator, puts it this way. All who are well pleased that there is a God must be well pleased that there is a Bible, a revelation of God, of His will, and of the only way to happiness in Him. He also says, for what we love, we love to pursue, we love to ponder, we love to think of. How can we think of God whom we love if we do not know the things of God to think of? It's important. What we know in Galatians 1 is that it pleases the Father to reveal the Son Jesus to us. And how does He reveal His Son to us? We know because of John 1 that He reveals Him through the Word. Through His written, inspired Word that spans over 2,500 years through over 40 authors in 66 books. He has inspired His Word in order for us to know Him and to be drawn to Him. And so what does the Bible even say of itself? It says it's literally Jesus on paper. The Bible says this in Hebrews 4.12, for the Word of God is living and active. Like, that doesn't just sound like any textbook that you throw on a shelf, right? Like, there's books over here. There's actually several books. I was looking at them earlier. There's a couple books over there that are over 200 years old. They are not living and active. All right? They're not living. Now, they have knowledge that's possessed in those books that you can read and figure out what was going on back in, you know, 19th century. But what those books can't do is they can't do this. They are not sharper than any two-edged sword. They, they do not pierce to the division of soul and of spirit. They do not get down to joints and of marrow. They do not discern the thoughts and the intentions of your heart. But yet, that is what the Word of God is doing. It is living and active. It is literally getting down to discerning who you are at an identity level so that as you are meditating on this, you are actually getting to know your truest self. See, that's important for us because in our current day and age, what is the number one thing that is plastered across Every media, across every um, social media platform, is find yourself. Find yourself. Define yourself. Redefine yourself. Change yourself. Whatever it looks like. It's trying to get to the core of who you are. 
And what the Bible is saying is it is the only thing that can actually be living and active to discern who you are at the deepest level of your identity. So that if you want to know yourself best, it is to know the Word of God so that you can discern it rightly. Now, from a definition perspective, that's the law of the Lord. That's the Bible. That's the inspired written Word of God is Jesus Christ in written form revealing the nature and character of God, revealing His plan to us. But here's where I want to kind of dive in a little bit more because I think for the most part, that's what we preach about the Bible. But what we maybe don't necessarily get into very much is, is, is this idea of why is the law of the Lord good for us? What is it doing for us when we meditate on it day and night? Or how does it lead one to delighting in it, as the psalmist says here? So let's look at how King David describes the law of the Lord and what he says the law of the Lord has done for him. So turn over with me, 19 chapters, Psalm 19. We're going to pick it up in verses 7 through 14. And we're just going to kind of roll through one verse or two verses at a time and kind of just break it down here the benefits of knowing God's Word and meditating on it day and night. Psalm 19, starting in verse 7, says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. What that basically saying is the perfection of the law revives your soul. It's as simple as that. That is what's happening here. But I want to dig in because how many of you right now just feel weary in your soul? Let's just, I want you to be encouraged. Hands up. How many of you feel weary in your soul right now? All right? Look around. A lot of us in this room, okay? There's a deep level of just, <sighs> we're tired, we're exhausted. Maybe we don't know how to rejoice because we're just tired. I want you to see something here. The Hebrew word for revive in this text is shove. And that's not like shove you out of the way, but maybe it is. Shove, which means to bring back for restoration, refreshment, and repair. The word of God is like a day spa for your soul. Truly. That's what we're looking at here. It's like a day spa for your soul. Full service. I'm talking massage. I'm talking drinks. I'm talking chiropractic alignment. Like whatever you need. And, and again, those things alone should be enough. But let's just... This is what the Word of God is providing for us. For our soul. But there's more. The testimony of the Lord is sure. Making wise the simple. See, the assurance of God's testimony establishes wisdom. Like how many times have we said, I'm just not sure what to do right now. I'm not sure what decision to make in life. What is God's will for my life? Well, guess what? The Word of God provides us wisdom, and in it we also find assurance. Which means we can make decisions with confidence 
We can make decisions with confidence because we have God's Word as our highest and most authoritative guide. Our highest and most authoritative guide. So when we're aligned, because again, what is it doing in reviving our soul? It's restoring us, it's refreshing us, and it's repairing us. It's aligning us with what God says is good for you and is going to bring you satisfaction and happiness. It's going to restore you. It's going to revive your soul. It's going to lift your spirits. How many times has the psalmist prayed? David prays, Lord, lift my spirits. And he will lift your spirits because the Word of God is driving that. Well, it's also driving assurance that as you see God working things out in your life, you're then able with what He's working out to then make decisions that are wise decisions with assurance that we can move forward in this direction, regardless of whatever that direction is. Verse 8, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The correctness of the Lord's rules causes the heart to rejoice. The correctness of the Lord's rules causes the heart to rejoice. I think one of the biggest issues I'm seeing right now in our country is just paranoia. Paranoia. People are afraid of what or who to believe, right? What can we trust? What media outlet is telling the truth? Which politician is telling the truth? Who can I trust? All of these things have bred nationwide hysteria. And that's why now more than ever, we need precepts that are true, that are right. Because that's the only thing that will ease our distress and make our hearts dance. Let's keep going. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The purity of God's commands bring clarity to our worldview. And I'm not saying we all have to agree on X, Y, and Z when it comes to our worldview, but I do believe that there's a biblical design. There's a worldview, if you will, of how things ought to be. God is restoring and He's making all things new. Again, whatever that new is that God is moving towards is in itself a worldview. It's what we align with. It's why we have distinctives. It's why we have certain programs and ministries that are driving us in a certain direction because we are looking at it, hopefully through wisdom and understanding from Scripture, that this is what pleases the Lord and that this is what is designed by the Lord and how things are to function when it comes to marriage and when it comes to children and when it comes to career and when it comes to how you live with neighbors and all those things. Like it's it's. It's God's design that He is bringing in. And what His Word is saying is that His design is pure and that His commands are, are clean and that they enlighten our eyes. They allow us to see the fabric of our situation with clarity to be able to step into it and make decisions that are right and good. And so don't... Don't try to create or define a worldview based on your emotions or feelings. Like that's just one of the worst things that we can do is create a worldview, create a design or a lifestyle that's based on how we feel. Because we should, at this point, know that our emotions and feelings are fleeting. Don't base it off your thoughts or mind either. 
Some of us come from poor discipleship. And when I say discipleship, I'm actually including that in the all-encompassing transfer of information to you. Which means you're discipled by songs you listen to. You're discipled by media outlets that you watch. You're discipled by movies that you enjoy. You're discipled by TV shows that you binge watch. All of these things are informing you and driving an agenda or a worldview or a a cultural understanding of how they think things ought to be. And so that's why it's so important for us not to just take our own thoughts and understanding and then kind of form a worldview and put it ahead of us and say, that's what I'm going to agree to and that's how I'm going to run with. I'll be honest with you, one of the worst things that you can do is develop a worldview when you've probably just graduated college. Because in all understanding, all you've been doing up to this point is just kind of living out an unidentified misunderstanding of who you are because of high school and college. That's probably the season in which you know least about yourself and you know least about anything and everything that's in culture or in the world. Right? I mean, let's let's be honest. Like, I'm more in love now with gaining knowledge and understanding and wisdom than what I was when I was forced to learn it in school. Let's just be real. I mean, I was able to make it through... Uh, graduating high school without ever actually reading a book cover to cover. Now, yes, I'm from White House, Tennessee, rural, it's what it is. But literally, and then in college, it was like, hey, Cliff Notes, genius. I don't have to read anything. All I got to do is just look at these Cliff Notes, gain common understanding, spin it a little bit so that I have some kind of originality, and then write a paper on it and deliver it to a classroom. That got me through college. Because I just didn't care at that point. I had other things that I was desiring. And so to kind of come out of that and try to form a worldview on how things go, no, I have way more to learn. Way more to understand. It's actually probably one of the most arrogant things we can do is say, man, I got it all figured out when I'm not even 30. I can say that because I'm 33. I've got it all figured out. (laughs) We need the commandment of the Lord to enlighten our eyes to help us. Verse 9, The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Fear in this text has to do with reverence and respect. The reverence and respect of the Lord is clean and it never changes. Like how comforting is that? We follow a king who has no skeletons in his closet. This past week I've become aware of another titan, I would say, in apologetics and theology who has now at his name, reputation, and legacy just tarnished due to a sexual scandal. And I just feel like that's actually becoming the norm. I mean, I feel like over the last six or seven years, just titans in the faith that I look at and I'm like, best book I've ever read, best sermon I've ever heard. 
Moral failure, moral failure, moral failure. And we just can't put hope in that. Like, if you put hope in myself, Josh, or Ransford, like, God bless you. Like, it's just, it's just going to go bad. It's just going to go bad. Don't put your hope in pastors or even other Christians to be your savior. The fear of the Lord, the reverence and respect that is Him is clean and it will never change. That should build our confidence. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Again, here we are after the truth. Everyone wants the truth, right? Well, the psalmist is just hammering this principle time and time again. What God is commanding us, what God is guiding us in is truth. Because God Himself cannot lie. He cannot lie. He doesn't do it. Not only are His rules true, but they are righteous. I know that's one of those churchy words, so let me break it down for you. I, I looked it up earlier in the original text, and it says it's righteous. <laughs> it's just the term for it. There's no greater term that is helping us understand the fact that every choice he makes is perfectly good, right, and just. It means there are no dirty deeds that God does. There are no white lies that he performs. There is nothing actionable that is swept under the rug that is, is void of God's judgment and his good and righteous justice. Like he, he accounts for everything and he remains holy, good, and pure. Like, that's the kind of king that we want to follow. That's the type of president that we want. That's the senator that we want to vote in. Like, that's who we want in charge is someone who is just and righteous altogether. And that's what he is saying here is that the rules that are protruding from the Lord are exactly that. And he goes on in verse 10, more to be desired are they than gold. He's just wrapping it all together. Everything it just said in verses 7 through 9, more to be desired are those things than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Now, let's just pause here for a second because I am a sucker for a good treasure hunt. Drives my wife nuts. I'm a sucker for a good treasure hunt. Like, I know Nicolas Cage is not the best actor that is out there, but national treasure is a national treasure. Right? Like, it's a gem. Like, it is a great movie. If, if you're flipping through the channels and it's on, you're stuck. You're watching it. It doesn't matter what point it is in the movie. Like, we, we get sucked into this, and if you're like, not Nicolas Cage, okay, Indiana Jones and Search for the Holy Grail. Like, I know some of you can get behind that. If you're more like TV show, there's Gold Rush and my personal favorite, Curse of Oak Island. Like they're just, they're after a treasure that they don't even know if is actually there. But yet they have literally invested millions of dollars purchasing islands, purchasing drilling rigs, uh, literally hiring archaeological digs, all kinds of things to maybe find something that they haven't found yet seven seasons in. but I'm sucked in Tuesday nights, 9 o'clock. <laughs> Maybe it's not treasure that gets you. And so here it's like, hey, food. 
honey, a delicacy for the elite of this day. What it's basically boiling down to here is materialism. Anything that you think you could go after and gain. More to be desired are the rules and commands and the law of the Lord that is coming to our minds and our hearts that is reviving our souls. Because materialism will never provide for you what the law of the Lord is providing for you. It sounds awfully similar to another passage in Scripture in Philippians where the Apostle Paul speaks of losing everything and counting it worthless that he might gain Christ and Christ alone. What the psalmist is doing here is just connecting the importance of knowing God's Word with knowing the person who is the Word of God. Jesus Christ, according to John 1.1. 1, 1. Verse 11. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Now, to be warned here means to be taught and admonished. To be taught and admonished. Again, this isn't you... Uh, this isn't a, you better do this or else, although that's kind of sort of true. This is much more a father admonishing his children that if you keep my words, there is great reward. What kind of reward? How about eternal forgiveness and innocence, even from the things that I can't see that I do? Look what he says in verse 12. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. I want to read to you a quote, and it's kind of a lengthy quote again from Matthew Henry here. He's just one of my favorite commentators. And this is what he says on the idea of meditation of the heart. Because the meditation of the heart, as we'll see here in a minute, is what really kind of pulls forward the words that come out of your mouth, which is essentially saying, this is what I understand. This is what I know. This is what I declare. This is what he says. To meditate in God's word is to discourse, which is to kind of communicate or even debate to discourse with ourselves concerning the great things contained in the Word, with a close application of mind, a fixedness of thought, till we be suitably affected with those things and experience the savor and power of them in our hearts. This we must do day and night. We must have a constant habitual regard to the Word of God as the rule of our actions and the spring of our comforts. And we must have it in our thoughts accordingly upon every occasion that occurs, whether night or day. No time is amiss for meditating on the Word of God, nor is any time unreasonable for those visits. We must not only set ourselves to meditate on God's Word morning and evening, at the entrance of the day and of the night, but these thoughts should be interwoven with the business and converse of every day and with, with the repose and slumbers of every night. What he's essentially saying here is that you need to be so tied to, tethered to, anchored to, 
the Word of God, that as you are living and breathing, that you are dialoguing and debating with yourself at every thought and every feeling, whether or not it is in accordance with God's beautiful, good, perfect, righteous, clean, enduring design that will actually lead you into happiness and joy. So that if your thought or feeling is contrary to the Word of God, which is leading you into stress and anxiety and and distress and whatever it is that is leading to death and destruction, you're able to take that thought by captivity and destroy it or put it to death and lay hold of the thought that is anchored in Scripture and apply it in your life. The only way we are able to take that type of initiative day in and day out, night in and night out, every moment of every breathing, waking second of the day is to be tethered to the Word of God. And the only way that we can be tethered to the Word of God is by meditating on it. And what I mean by meditating on it is I mean knowing it. Start by reading it. Start by memorizing it. Start by plastering it, as Deuteronomy says, on the, over the doors of your, the doorposts, putting it on the walls, putting it at the gate, putting it on your phone, putting it wherever your eyes see. You're able to take it in so that it anchors to your mind and it anchors to your heart. And as you have that internal dialogue on a daily basis, you're able to know the Word of God which then at that very moment is discerning the intentions of your heart. It's discerning your thoughts. And it's able to speak into as the wonderful counselor that Jesus is. It's able to speak into that moment. Hey, this is not going to go well for you. Take it captive and get rid of it. This is going to bring you the happiness that you're searching for right now. It's going to bring for you the joy that you're longing for. It's going to bring for you the satisfaction that this other thing will not bring. So anchor yourself to it. Tether yourself to it. Here's what I want you to take away. What you need most right now is more Jesus Christ. And the way in which God gives you more Jesus Christ is by giving you His Word, the law of the Lord. And let's, let's meditate on it. Let's get into it. If you, if you missed January 1 on the reading plan, great. Start now. Today. Just pick up. Don't kill yourself because you miss a day here and there. Just get in. And let your soul be revived. Because that's what we need. And once that happens, let your soul enjoy the day at the spa. Enjoy that much needed restoration, refreshment, and repair of what is broken. For Christ is advancing His Spirit through every corridor of your heart and your mind. We're seeing Him and we're savoring Him. And there we finally are able to worship in both spirit and in truth. In that place, you'll be able to say, what a year it has been. Except that will have a new meaning.
Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this word. We thank you for your scripture that is inspired by you, which means it's breathed out by you. And it is useful for us for correction, for rebuke, for training in righteousness. It pierces to the depths of our identity, to the separating of joint and marrow. And it discerns our thoughts and our hearts. It allows us to see Jesus rightly, which allows us to see God rightly. And in there, that is where we find rest. Rest. And so, Father, my prayer for us as a church, as a body, is that we just simply dust off the Bibles and we open them and we open our minds and our hearts to your truth and your word. And if we're lacking ambition, if it's just one of those seasons where it's hard to read, Lord, may sermons like this or may our community around us read for us by encouraging us in your word, by laying over us scripture, by just quoting scripture to one another. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Instruct us, Lord. You're worthy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at